And now, for the show reflecting on classic radio, Hollywood 360, with your host, Carl Amari. He was like a god walking amongst mere mortals. He had a voice that could make a wolverine purr, and suits so fine they made Sinatra look like a hobo. This your place, Carl? Yeah, what do you think? Really? It's really awful. But I have a lot of things that are on order, you know, credit trouble. Pay more attention to your schoolwork and listen to the radio. You always listen to the radio. It's different. Our lives are ruined already. The Whistler. self-destruct in five seconds. Hello, everyone. I'm Carl Amari, and this is Hollywood 360, the radio show that presents the best in classic radio. This time, it's part two of People Are Funny, starring Art Linkletter from 1956. Then Dana Andrews stars as Matt Savetic in another true crime story on I Was a Communist for the FBI from 1953. With me, as always, is my executive producer and engineer, Mike Costello. What's up, Mike? Hi, Carl. Maybe we should send Lisa a uh, postcard or something, wherever she is, <laughs> somewhere in the uh, four corners of the world. Right. She's somewhere out there in her airplane. Uh, Lisa, if you're listening, uh, I know you're going to enjoy the uh, second half now of People Are Funny, because you are. You're very funny. You, you, are, you definitely are one of the people that are funny. Let's go back to 1956. Art Linkletter is host. Here's the conclusion to People Are Funny. You know, people are funny. Two people look at the same thing, and they see entirely different things. And we're going to prove it to you tonight. Let's bring in the young man first, who is our special guest. I say special because he was picked as a volunteer last week when we did the show. How do you do, sir? How do you do, Mr. Linkletter? Your name is? Jack Schmitz. How old are you, Jack? 24. You volunteered when I asked for what kind of people? A young married couple who had a car older than five years. That is correct. Now, we had to pick you last week because we wanted you to bring your car down, and this is it, isn't it? Yes, it is. This car is about what vintage? 1947. 47, uh-huh. Well, that's older than five years. Now, we also asked you to get the blue book on this car, this family buggy of yours. What is the blue book on this 47 car? $250. $250. Well... Now, let's find a little bit more about you before we find out about the car. What do you do for a living? Well, I go to school in the mornings, and I'm a salesman in the afternoon. Uh-huh. And uh, you are married because yes. your wife was with you. Where's your wife now? She's backstage somewhere. That's right. We have her bound and gagged in a soundproof room where she can't hear any of this first part of the show. Now, um, by the way, what does she do? She goes to school as a secretary in the afternoon. Oh, you both work? Yes. And you both go to school? Yes, we do. Uh... We have established cars worth about $250. And the reason we asked you to bring it down here today so we could move it into our set was because I wanted to see whether or not a young couple, obviously you can use a little money, yes. whether you would like to make a profit on this car. Now, the blue book's $250. Yes. I have here in my hot little fist $500, twice the blue book value of the car. But what I want to find out from you is whether or not the car is worth double what the blue book value is, what a dealer would give you. So let me hear you sell me on your family buggy. How long have you had it? A year. All right. What about it? How's the rubber, for instance? Well, this car is in excellent shape. It was my grandfather's before me. It was never taken out of the town of Fullerton. Is this the truth? This is the truth. 
This sounds like it. All cars are owned by little old ladies in Pasadena who are school teachers and kept it up on... Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. Raise your right hand. This was owned by your grandfather. This was owned by my grandfather. Never was out of the family. Never was out of the family. Your grandfather is a good, sober, serious man. He is. Well, I'll be a son of a gun. The, the tires are okay, huh? How about the transmission? Well, it's excellent. After all, it's an old car, but it, it works very well. How about the upholstery? Looks a little stained. Well, a new set of seat covers would uh, fix it up. How about the oil? Doesn't use any oil. It's excellent. <laughs> What's that pool doing down there? What is the pool doing on our stage? Knowing your show, you probably... Uh... <laughs> no, we didn't. <laughs> Does it use oil? Just a little occasionally. Just a little oil. Uh-huh. Well, it sounds like a pretty good job. Paint job's pretty good. Body's in pretty good shape. Here's the $500. You have done a good job of selling me your car. Just something occurred to me. Is this your car? Yes, it is. No, yours. Well, it's ours. Aha. Uh -huh. This is a community property state. Your wife owns half of this car? Yes. All right. Before you agree to sell this car to me for $500, shouldn't we consult her? I suppose. <laughs> all right. That's all I want. Is your wife an honest woman? I believe you so. You trust her? You have nothing to worry. Stand aside. <laughs> Bring in the wife. We'll find out what happens around here. It's their car. And he sold it to me for $500. Now, before she gets out here, every time she knocks it, I'm going to knock $100 off the price. Every time I say it's too bad, off goes $100. And you did sell it to me. All right. We'll wait. She's coming from the dungeons. We keep her down where Jack Benny has his money all locked up. We'll see. Hello. How do you do? Would you come over here, please? You are Mrs. Um... Elizabeth Schmitz. And Mrs. Schmitz, we've just been talking to your husband about this car, which you were asked to bring down here. huh? Yes. Now, Mrs. Schmitz... You know, you know this program, people are funny. Yes. And you know perfectly good and well that on this program we give away new houses and sometimes we give away new cars. Oh. But we asked you to bring this car down to see whether or not you needed a new car. Now, this car looks to be in pretty good shape, isn't it? Well. I don't know whether you really need a new car. Well... I tell you, the tires aren't too good, really. Oh, that's too bad. Really? They, they don't have any tread on them. I mean, there's one of them that has tread on it. One car, one, one tire has tread, but the yeah. other three don't have much tread. No, that's right. How about the oil? Well, it's awful expensive to run. I mean, it, it takes a lot of oil, and, and we're always having to pay money to the gas station man for oil. That's too bad. Oh, gee, an, an oil, an oil uh, fixing up those oil things sometimes costs a hundred dollars. You know, to get a thing fixed up. How how about the um, how about the paint? Well, the paint's all right, but uh, well, it really it has a couple of dents in the back fenders. Did you see them? No. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> that's too bad. 
dense, dense. Why is it too huh? bad? Huh? Why is it too bad? It's too bad because it's it's a shame to see a good car like this with all the defects that you point out. How about the upholstery? Well, it's kind of old. Uh-huh. You'd like a new car, wouldn't you? Oh, sure. <laughs> I just wondered, uh-huh. Upholstery's pretty bad. Well, those are quite a few things. Um, how much do you have left? $200. Mr. Schmitz, turn around. You see what your husband's holding? I bought this car from him for $500, and every time you said something bad about it, we took $100 away. How could we? We were taking your word for it. That wasn't fair. I didn't tell you you were going to get a new car, did I? Well... Not, not really. Are you an honest woman? Yes. You always tell the truth. Always tell the truth. I ask you one more question. How are the brakes? Well, it stops if you press on them real hard. <laughs> I wanted to prove that even after she knew the gag, she would tell the truth. Your grandfather must be in jail for reckless driving. He's probably... Uh, <laughs> A centenarian delinquent. Well, actually, what we have done here is to prove that two people look at the same thing entirely differently when they have two different advantages to gain. You thought maybe you'd... Uh... Give me that last hundred, Pat. Take the hundred dollars. Take the two hundred dollars. Take the car and go home. And when you get home, you'll find waiting for you... A couple of round-trip tickets on United Airlines DC-7 mainliner to Las Vegas and an all-expense-paid week at the Sahara Hotel in Las Vegas. You got your $200, you got the car, you got an honest wife. You should be very happy with her. And uh, to make you real pretty up there, here's a bottle of nice Arpege perfume. Oh, thank you. Thanks for both of you proving that people can be truthful with two different people. At the beginning of the show, we sent out two contestants out of our audience dressed as bride and groom to have a treasure hunt for people. Someone old, someone new, someone borrowed, and someone blue. The first one back to the studio with both of his people wins a beautiful television set. So let's bring out the bride first. A pretty little girl dressed up especially in our bridal veil. And your name again is? Jean Parker. Yes, you're the girl from the little town in Montana. That's right. Did you have fun tonight? Oh, boy. <laughs> Did you find that we proved that all the world loves a lover and people in trouble on their way to getting married, people will do anything for them or won't they? Well, not anything. Well, I mean, did you ask? Now, you had to get somebody old, old and somebody right. new. And the old had to be over? 60. And you, the new had to be? Under six. Did you get them both? Yes, I did. How many people did you go to before you got them both? Oh, seven or eight. Seven or eight, but you finally came back with them both? <laughs> Let's meet them and see whom she brought back with no help from anybody but herself. Here they come. Well, how do you do, sir? You stand right over here. Well, now, which one of these two did you get first? I got the man first. The man. And, sir, could we uh, find out who you are? Smitty. Yeah, how old are you, Smitty? 71. Uh, you got one over 60. And what were you doing tonight when this young, pretty little bride approached you? I was doing a little work. What kind of work? Putting away some papers. Oh, you're a paper boy? That's right. A newspaper boy, uh-huh. What paper do you sell? Sell them all. 
Oh, uh-huh. You single or married? Married. You're married. Now, what did she say to you when she walked up to you? She said she'd like to have a witness. She's going to get married. A witness, huh? Yes. And you said you'd be yeah, willing to I, come along. I said I'd be glad to go along with it. Well, you have done the job. You've gotten a witness, see? Now you're witnessing it, aren't you? Now this one was second. Yes. All right. What's your name? Lynn. Glenn? Lynn. Lynn who? Lynn Christian Hassan. Lynn Christian Hassan. How old are you? Four. Four? Well, I'm glad to see you. Now, are you married or single? Single. You're single. <laughs> and Lynn, um, what were you doing tonight? Um. Where were you going tonight? Where were you standing somewhere? No, I was going... Going to a show. Going to a show? Who were you with? My daddy. Oh, and what did this girl want when she walked up? She said, I want to go, I want you to go to here. To where she was getting married? Oh, did you, what did you tell the father or the girl? Well, the father was a little dubious about it, and he said, well, why do you want her? <laughs> and I said, well, she's awfully cute, and... And uh, I said I needed someone for a wedding, you know, to carry the flowers and... <laughs> oh, a little flower girl. Well, let's see what you're wearing for a flower girl. What do you have on? Your pajamas? No. <laughs> what do you have on? A suit. A suit. Look at the zipper down the front. Oh, boy. Well, you did it. You got them both. Now, if you folks will just step back here about two feet, and if you move over, we'll bring out the groom and see how he did. Out on the streets of Hollywood with no help, working separately. Your name again, sir? Warren Schultz. You were to pretend that you were on your way to a wedding, and you were to get somebody borrowed and somebody blue. That's right, Art. Did you go to many people? Oh, I, not too many, about five, six people. And if they knew you were going to a wedding, they'd do anything for you? They were very helpful. Let's meet the two people that he brought back. Uh-huh. A few people will just stand right here next to me, up in close here. Which one is borrowed? Uh, the young lady. Hello. Who are Hello. you? Terry Edwards. What do you do, Terry? I work at American Electronics. American Electronics. Mm-hmm. And what do you do over there? I'm a lead lady. A lead lady. Well, you certainly did borrow a beautiful girl. How did you borrow her? How did you, did she belong to somebody? Well, uh, looked like she belonged to somebody. Why? Well, she was sitting with them and they were eating. In a restaurant? In a restaurant. Your husband? No, my fiance. Oh, what did you say? Well, I told them that, uh, I was getting married and I asked them if they'd help me out, that we needed some witnesses and, uh, we wanted another girl and if, he didn't mind, would she oblige and come with me? And leave him there? Well, he wouldn't quite go for that. Oh, he came along. Yeah. What, were you in the middle of the meal? Just finishing. Just finishing, and he accepted, I mean, your fiancé agreed to let you be borrowed if he came along. Yes. Well, you did it. You did it. Where's your fiancé right now? Back. Back there. Oh, he's the fellow with the gun. Uh-huh. And you, sir, would you come a little closer and tell us who you are? Uh, it's it's Morris Kahn. He's the fellow that's supposed to be melancholy or blue. Why did you pick him? Well, uh, he started off being melancholy. He looks sad. Let me see you look blue. 
jacket was blue. His jacket's blue. Shirt's blue. Trousers are blue. So, in other words, you were taking no chance. Something not borrowed, something blue in color, and in, you're not a melancholy fellow, are you? Yeah. Huh? <laughs> well, sometimes, yeah. You are. Uh, your disposition is blue. Yeah. Yeah. You poor fellow. He doesn't look it now, does he? Not at all. You almost laughed your way out of a prize for him, you know. Well, ladies and gentlemen, apparently these two people competed very successfully in that they both brought back someone borrowed, someone blue, someone old, and someone new, Mr. Irvin Atkins. Would you give me a report, please, on who was back first? The uh, lady was back first. By how much time? Oh, quite a bit of time, seven or eight minutes. Seven or eight minutes. Well, you get the consolation prize, and what a prize it is, a beautiful third-dimensional stereo realist camera and a viewer. This is worth several hundred dollars, and you get some beautiful third-dimensional pictures out of it. You get the first prize. I'll tell you about in a second. Each of these three grown-ups will get a Lucien Picard wristwatch, a beautiful one for taking time out from your meal and from your melancholy and from your newspaper to come back here. And young lady, how would you like to have a nice new bicycle of your size? Would you? And you'll be the flower girl at the wedding. Say something. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. And uh, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> and you, my pretty little miss, you get a 21-inch Stromberg Carlson television set. There's nothing finer than a Stromberg Carlson. Compliments of people are funny. Goodbye. And good luck to all of you. This program was transcribed from Hollywood. And that's People Are Funny from 1956 with host Art Linkletter. Hope you enjoyed that. Let's take a break. When we come back, it's I Was a Communist for the FBI. Stick around. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. Welcome back. I'm Carl Amari. This is Hollywood 360 across about 200 radio stations coast to coast. And it's time now for Dana Andrews starring as Matt Savetic in I Was a Communist for the FBI. Let's go back to June 7th, 1953. This episode is called 15 Minutes to Murder. Here is part one of I Was a Communist for the FBI. I was a communist for the FBI. Starring Dana Andrews and an exciting tale of danger and espionage, I was a communist for the FBI. From the actual records and authentic experiences of Matt Sabetic, come many of the incidents in this unusual story. Here is our star, Dana Andrews, as Matt Sabetic, who for nine fantastic years lived as a communist for the FBI. For nine phantasmal years, I was the man who looked into the dark mirror and wondered, which is the reflection and which is me? For nine years, I lived my double life so intensely that sometimes I wondered, which is the real Sovietic? What is reality and what is the dream? It's over now. It all fades back into memory and merciful unreality. It's hard to believe it happened. So fantastic, so stunning were the events and their implications. Sometimes I wonder... Is it really over, or is this a lull in the nightmare? Now, here is Dana Andrews as Matt Savetic, 
Undercover Man. This story from the confidential file is marked 15 Minutes to Murder. I've been out of sorts for weeks, and I know what it is. A steady, grinding burden of intrigue and vigilance and double-dealing, and just plain, raw, unvarnished fear are getting me down. I go to a doctor, and he tells me exactly what I want to hear. At last, I have a good, legitimate reason to be excused temporarily from party duty. I make my routine telephone check-in with my chief, Comrade Revchenko, from a pay telephone full of the glad news from my doctor. Nothing right now except continue with your routine duties until further notified. About those routine duties... And be a little more prompt in reporting. Well, I can explain that delay. I've been to my doctor. Why? Nothing serious. Routine checkup. He did say I ought to take a rest. I see. You wouldn't want me to go haywire in the middle of an assignment, would you? Did he find anything wrong with you? Nothing serious, really. I could go back and have him pin a stiff cardiac wrap on me. That'll make you any happier. What did the doctor discover? A little high blood pressure, but that's only... Good enough. What? Report to headquarters at once. Look, I'm supposed to take it easy just for... Report to headquarters. The doctor said... At once. At once. That's the first portion of I Was a Communist for the FBI. More after these words. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. Now let's get back to I Was a Communist for the FBI. Sit down, Comrade Severic. Before we go much further, I ought to point out... Point out nothing until I finish, Comrade. Sorry. I've been doing some work while you were on your way over here. Concerning me? I have rearranged matters to provide for you, yes. Provide for me? You need a rest, comrade. I could use one. I have arranged everything. Uh, How do you mean? Arranged what? A private room at Angel of Mercy Hospital. Look, I'm not really sick. You need a rest in bed. Well... I had assigned somebody else to this, but your mild hypertensive condition makes you more logical for the job. Oh, it's work then? A rest in bed at party expense. We expect some return for our generosity, and complete idleness would soon bore you. Good enough. What's the job? Directly across the street from the room I've reserved for you, some 200 feet away, is the back of a row of fashionable apartment houses. Oh, yeah, I know the place. From your bed, you will keep a constant lookout on one of those apartments. Which apartment is marked on this simple diagram? Twelfth mm-hmm. floor. All five windows. Mm-hmm. You will need this pocket telescope, small enough to keep on your person. Allow nobody to realize that you are watching the apartment. What's the object? Or shouldn't I ask? You should very definitely know, comrade. We are out of patience with the FBI. Oh? Tired of their spying, tired of their undercover burrowing into the very core of our party apparatus. It is time we serve notice that this is war and that espionage in war is punishable by extreme measures. Then the man I'm watching... Is an FBI spy? Study every move he makes. He knows he's a marked man. He does not expose himself where we can punish him. That's understandable. Now repeat this number after me. Shoot. Elmwood 41137. Elmwood 41137. Again. Elmwood 41137. Mark nothing down. Of course not. Watch the apartment. Notice Benedict's actions. Well, that's his name then, huh? Benedict? Call it that. Go ahead. 
Report to Elmwood 41137 closely. It may take a week or two weeks or a month, but keep at it. What may take that long, exactly? For Benedict to decide it's safe to leave his stronghold. When he does, give our men half an hour's notice. They will do the rest. Check. Informers and contemptible stool pigeons. Time they squirmed. What else? That's it. Everything's prepared for you. All right. I'll pick up a few things and report at the hospital. Semantic. Yes? We will leave for the hospital directly from here. I'll come back here, then. We are leaving from here immediately. But I... Secrecy, comrade Sophetic, secrecy. Absolute and impenetrable secrecy. We will go to the hospital from here in a car I have waiting for us. They are all over, the FBI spies and informers. You seem disturbed, comrade. Uh, it's just this. I'm to be the accessory to a man's murder. An FBI informer? Some vacation. You did not join the party to sip pink lemonade, comrade. In the hospital, you will under no circumstances attempt to contact the party. Do you understand? I understand. It is out of our hands. Whatever occurs must be credited to the ordinary underworld retaliation. Yes. Forget us. Simply call Elmwood 41337. 1137, isn't it? Hmm. Just testing. We will go now. We walk several blocks and hesitate at a corner to be picked up by a nondescript car driven by a man I've never seen before. Silence. All the way to the Angel of Mercy Hospital. Absolute silence. I'm being whisked away to a private hospital room secretly, incommunicado, to spy on another FBI undercover man like myself and send him to his death. And I can't even get to a telephone to call my FBI contact and report what's happening. I've got to report to them. I've got to get to the FBI. All I get is to the hospital, though. Revchenko stands by wordlessly while the registrar checks me into my room, 1216. Then he goes, and I'm on my own, isolated, marooned. Can I get you anything, Mr. Svetik? Oh, thank you, nurse. Dr. Anatole will be in to see you soon. Oh? Well, your doctor, Dr. Anatole. Fine. He'll be in directly. Okay, he'll be in in a flash. Oh, you're not going to be a bad patient, are you now? Oh, I'm just going to be the sweetest thing ever happened to this little old temple of mercy. You don't have to be cross, do you? I want to be left alone. Just as you say, Mr. Spedick. Absolute minimum of solicitous attention. What are you angry at me for? I'm not angry at you. Oh, I'm sorry, Ness. I'm not angry at you. I know you're, you're nervous and upset, but... Oh, nurse. We'll take care of that, though, won't we? Well, just remember, I'm not mad at you. Oh, is the... Telephone connected? Oh, yes. Go right ahead and use it. Dr. Anato will be right in. The second I'm alone, I take the pocket scope from under my pillow and peer out the window. Across 200 feet of street and a backyard terrace to the rear of those stylish apartment buildings. I pick out Benedict's suite. That's it, all right. A sportsman's apartment. Rifles on racks. Hunting trophies on every wall. Up another trophies on a mantelpiece. I reach for the telephone. Communique number one. I feel sick. Your order, please. Elmwood 41137. Thank you. Never mind the opera. 
From Wood 41137? Yeah. I'm in. Oh, yeah. You know who's talking, don't you? Keep talking. You may have to move fast. Move fast is what we do best. Stay close to the phone now. I got a permanent poker game right in the room. That's all for now. Check. Now. Your order, please. Evergreen 65542. Thank you. The FBI. Somehow, somehow I've got to let them know where I am at least, and what I'm up to, and what one of their boys is in for. Disco, that's my contact's code name. I'm O'Neill. Disco. O'Neill. Disco. O'Neill. Disco. Oh, come on, answer. Get with it, boys. Get on the boat. Hello? Uh, Driscoll? Driscoll, please, right away. I beg your pardon? Driscoll. Driscoll, right away. Hurry. There's nobody by that name here. Yes, there is, I tell you. Who is this? O'Neill. Tell him I'm O'Neill. He'll know. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is Driscoll. Who? Go ahead. How's your mother? Fine. How's yours? <laughs> I know that voice on the wire isn't Driscoll. Then who is it? I have to reach the FBI. I don't know what I've got on the line, but I've got to take a chance. Calculated risk. I've got to stay on the phone. If I am talking to the FBI, I've got to talk a gibberish that makes some kind of sense to them and sounds harmless enough to anybody who might be tapping my wire. Maybe this guy who says he's Driscoll is the wiretap. I don't know. I've got to play it cozy. But I've got to... To play. Hello? Hello, are you there, O'Neill? You know, uh, I was just thinking, Driscoll. Yeah? Those mysterious telephone calls your wife's been getting, some crank or something. Yeah? The next time this bum calls, why doesn't she play up to him and have her sister run next door and have the cops trace the call? We had exactly the same idea. That's what we're going to do. Well, have her keep him on the line long enough, though. I know. Well, that way the cops can trace the call and close in on Mr. Mysterious. Sounds very conspiratorial. What? Oh. Hello? Somebody just walked in. I am Dr. Anatole. Who? I think you'd best ring off for now. Oh, I feel all right. Better hang up. Sure. Hold on, chum. I've got to ring off. Yeah? You should not have a telephone until a staff physician examines you and decides you may have one. I'm all right, doctor. Then why are you here? Oh, just a little... Hypertension, that's all. You should not have a telephone until I have okayed it. I'm surprised. Now, if you'll cooperate, I shall examine you. How much did Dr. Anatole hear? What does he know beside medicine? I'm afraid of that mucilaginous voice and that cold, nothing smile of his. Is he there to watch me? That phone made him pretty mad in his cold-blooded way. Or maybe I'm imagining it. I don't know. In my position, I've got to assume that the walls have ears and that a strange voice that isn't Driscoll's could be a trap. Meanwhile, I've got to study Benedict across the way, find out when he gets up, when he has his meals brought in, how much time he spends on his two telephones. He never goes out. But when he gets up his nerve to try it, he's dead. And I would have killed him indirectly. And it looks close now. Your order, please. Elmwood 41137. Thank you. Yeah. 
time now. Oh, it's you. I hate to disturb your poker game. What's the matter? It's you? Never mind. Wise guy. Stand by to go on fast notice. Yeah, I'm all tensed up. I mean it. Listen, what are we kids? We know what to do. All right, then. Are you stupid or something? He's taking stuff off the walls and packing them. That means he's ready to go. When he goes, we'll come. All right. Stand by. Check. That's all. I keep watching Benedict. All the signs point to his making a break for it. I think of taking a chance on the pretty nurse, who looks too crisp and fresh to be a comrade. But how does one know? Send her with a sealed note to the FBI address? Or no? Write a note and send it through the mails. Maybe special delivery. That's it. Take a chance, that's all. Take a chance that whoever I give the letter to, to mail, is on the level. Everybody can't be a spy. But it only takes one. I'll do it. Oh, nurse! Oh, nurse! Yes, Mr. Sedek? I might have a letter for you to mail. When do you go off duty? At four o'clock, Mr. Sedek. All right, I'll have it ready for you at, uh... No. What? Never mind. Forget it. Never mind. Well, uh... All right, Mr. Sedek. Just as you say. Too late. I waited too long, hesitating being scared, because I can see that Benedict across the street is getting ready to clear out. By the time the nurse got to the FBI headquarters, it'll be all over anyhow. I've got to report to Rev. Chenko's goon squad. I don't want to, I've got to. And then, maybe, figure some way out for Benedict. And for myself, too. Number 411. I've got to. Hello? Your order, please. Elmwood. Hello. Elmwood 41137. Thank you. No. I can't do it. I won't. Good afternoon, Mr. Savetti. Anatole. Or... Dr. Anatole. I I didn't hear you. Perhaps you were preoccupied. Miss Christopher says you seemed quite upset a moment ago. Who? Your nurse. Upset? Something about changing your mind about some letter. <laughs> oh, that. That small affair of the heart, you know. That's probably for me, Sovetic surgery. Yes. For you. Thank you. Yes? I had your party for you when you hung up, Mr. Setti. Well, I, I don't think I... Go I, right ahead, Savetti. Don't mind me. Oh, operator, I don't... Yeah? Want... Hello? Oh, you again. Hold on just a second, will you? Thanks. Will you excuse me, doctor? Oh, of course. I'll come back later. Hello? Uh, talk up, sport. Talk up. I can't. Somebody may be listening outside. He's ready to leave. Oh, okay. Give it to me faster. He's wearing a light gray suit with a gray tweed top coat and a pearl gray snap brim hat. I figure he'll be out any time now, so better to get there early than late. Gray suit, gray tweed top coat, pearl gray snap brim hat. Check. The entrance to the apartment is on the other side, not facing the hospital. Yeah, check. Have you got enough? Oh, we can't miss. At all? 
That's all. Well, here we go. You're happy about it, aren't you? A buck is a dollar. How, how long will you be? Fifteen minutes, tops. So long, mister. No time to kill. Yeah. No time to kill. But fifteen minutes to murder. May I, Savetti? Uh, come in. Well, you're having a rather hectic time of it, aren't you? It's going all right. Mm, let's just try your pulse. Right? I'm fine. You don't want to excite yourself too much, Savetti. I don't. Can't fool the pulse rate, you know. Well, settle down. Oh, I'm sure of it. In fact, I've signed your discharge. Miss Christopher will be up in a moment with your clothing and effects. I'm discharged? You'll be out of here in ten minutes. Fine. I won't see you again, so... Goodbye. Goodbye, Doctor. I lie in bed trying not to think. Then trying to think of some way out for Benedict across the street. Fascinated, I stare at him across the way, preparing to clear out and walk right into those Tommy guns. Then I sit up sharply in bed. The man across the way is holding a pair of binoculars to his eyes, looking straight at me, it seems. I know they're binoculars, and I should have known he'd had binoculars when all that other sporting paraphernalia around. And then, all at once, I understand, I know. I'm not watching him. He's watching me. And if he is watching me, then my wire's probably been tapped and they know all about that call to the FBI. They wanted me to try that call. And I bit. I fell for the whole tricky trap to make me show my hand. I'm the dirty stool pigeon, unquote, that Rev. Chinko hoped would reveal himself. I'm the patsy. Tag. I'm it. So I think you're dead. Because here comes the nurse with my clothes and effects. So I can walk out of here. To be mowed down by gunsels that I've called myself. Oh, beautiful. Here you are, Mrs. Betty. It's your thing. You can be out of here in ten minutes, we hope. Well, what's the rush? How about an hour? Oh, no. Dr. Anatole said ten minutes. Can I have half an hour? I'm afraid not. Why not? Well, there's another patient coming in in ten minutes. All right. Okay. Get out. You can have a wheelchair to the curb if you like. I don't like. Will there be a car waiting for you? Yeah. A big black sedan. Oh, fine. Yeah, fine. Get out. I get dressed. I look across the street. Benedict is gone. I go over to the window and draw the shade. But it doesn't mean anything now. They know I'm coming out and that I'm FBI. I try to think of how I can get out by other exits. Not that it matters. If they don't get me now, they'll get me later. Now would be better for them. It would be an example of quick, bold vengeance for other informers to notice. I'm dead, all right. But I have one small satisfaction. At least I wasn't putting the finger on a fellow FBI undercover man. And then the door snaps open and the big man who wasn't there is there. O'Neill, Matt. Driscoll. Driscoll it is, Matt. Let's get out of here fast. Where were you? I tried to call you at the FBI, but some strange voice answered. I know. You know? Yeah, I instructed him to accept calls for Driscoll from O'Neill. Well, I took a chance and talked some jabberwocky at him, hoping he'd catch on and trace the call back here to the hospital. Yeah, smart boy, Matt, and we're smart little fellas, too. Because that's how I knew you were in this room. Where have you been all the time? Two rooms down the corridor, watching that commie across the street. You, too? They told me he was an FBI agent they wanted to knock off. I thought I was killing our own man. You almost did. What? I'm the guy. But it's me they're after. 
They're going to mow me down in the street. They've been watching me, testing me. I'm dead. Look, I was watching him first, getting a line on the people who visit him. They caught on after two days and sent him to watch me. But they had to get the information about me from you. How do you know that? Well, look at me. Remember the clothes that gent across the street was wearing? Gray suit, gray tweed top coat, pearl gray hat, right? Yeah. Well, he was watching me and mimicking whatever significant things I did for you to see in report. By reporting on him, you were reporting on me. Sort of a carom shot. They're after me, Matt, not you. They trust you completely as of this assignment. Well, they wouldn't have let you act for them. Now, look, you leave first, and I'll follow in five minutes. Watch out for that Dr. Anatole, though. Anatole? He's one of us. Oh, brother. Have I got a headache? Get going. Then what about the killer car? It's on the way. Ah, it'll never get here. As soon as we found out where you were, thanks to your call, we put a tap on your phone. We've had Elmwood 41137 staked out for two days. Oh, then you've picked up those gunsels. Ten minutes ago, with all kinds of raps against them. They've all got records we can put them away for. Quite a haul, huh, man? Yeah. And you're in the clear. The Reds will blame me for everything. Nice haul. Terrific. Vacation in bed. Ha! <laughs> when I get downstairs, sure enough, no black sedan bristling with Tommy guns. My head is still whirling, and it isn't blood pressure. It's pressure, all right, but not blood pressure. I shake my head to a taxi driver at the curb. Walk it off, Semitic. Walk it off. Rest cure. Oh, sure. I ought to be resigned to the pressure by now. Resigned? Maybe. But there's no rest, and there's no peace. Just resignation for being marooned among enemies. Forbidden from acknowledging my friend. I'm a communist for the FBI. I walk alone. This is Dana Andrews. I can drop my role of Matt Savetic after each show. But there's a real Matt Savetic from whose fantastic adventures these stories all stem. The story you've just heard happened in all its basic details. The constant silent warfare between the FBI and the Communist Party never ceases. This story told one small phase of that bitter fight. Names, places, and incidents have been disguised naturally, but the spirit of fact remains untouched. Next week, another exciting adventure from the journal of Matt Savetic, who worked undercover for the FBI. It's a landmark, and you're listening, so mark it. See you then. And that's I Was a Communist for the FBI, starring Dana Andrews in 15 Minutes to Murder from June 7th, 1953. Hope you enjoyed that. Let's take a quick break. Then it's more here of Hollywood 360 after these words. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. Next time, we'll tune in to an episode of Suspense from 1950. Then it's part one of Archie Andrews. Uh, So don't miss it. That's next time here on Hollywood 360. We'll see you then.